I hope you had a chance uh, to see the coffee question. I posted it on Instagram and on Facebook as well. And the question was, what was the best surprise that ever happened to you? And I thought of something that happened a few years ago uh, when Barb and I had our 60th birthday. Our kids planned a surprise party. What made it so good is we had no idea. Uh, they sent us away for an overnight, and our daughter had said that, and we thought it was just from her, and then to discover that all the family had gathered at our home. And so that was a great surprise for us. I'm wondering if I can get the slides at the back so that I can, uh, as I'm going along, I can show them to you as, as I'm teaching. So I've hoped you've had a chance to talk with someone about the best surprise that ever happened to you. Today's passage is found in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51 to 54. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 to 54. And so as we read this passage, this is the last Sunday in which we'll be dealing with the theme of Easter. And we're going to continue to work with the passage that we had studied last Sunday when we talked about the temple curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew 27 continues in that very same moment, but it adds additional detail that was not, um, that many of the other gospel writers don't add. And so I want us to press into this passage today. Matthew 27, verse 51 to 54. says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. I want to recognize right at the very beginning that a number of sources were helpful to me as I prepared today's teaching on this passage. Some of them were John Piper, gotquestions.org, and Tom Wright. Now, the other gospel writers, most interestingly, are silent about the earthquake, the splitting of rocks, and the resurrection of many holy people who appeared to many in Jerusalem after Jesus rose from the dead. That said, Mark, Luke, and John included other pertinent details that Matthew didn't write about. But when the four gospels are put together, they reveal a most surprising reality that no one expected until the end of time. The prophet Isaiah, 500 years earlier, in chapter 65, verse 17 of his book, had foretold what God would do at the end of the age. He wrote, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, 
and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Now, the understanding of all who lived in the time of Jesus was that this prophecy, the prophecy Isaiah had recorded, that it would be fulfilled at the end of this age. Before he died, Jesus cried from the cross, It is finished. And with these three words, he announced that a most profound spiritual event, the most profound spiritual event of all history, had just taken place. That cry announced that the reign of death was over. Jesus had accomplished all that was needed for humanity's salvation. And in doing so, he had also defeated Satan. That cry was an announcement that said the age of re-creation had begun. And it had happened not at the end of time as everyone had supposed, but in the middle of time. Let me explain. We're meant to hear Jesus' cry from the cross as an echo. We're meant to draw a connection between what Jesus said on the cross, which announced a new beginning, and what God himself had done after he created everything at the very beginning. On the sixth day of creation... Genesis 2, verse 1 and 2, says that God finished the work he'd been doing. As he looked at all he made, God saw that it was very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. What day of the week did Jesus cry from the cross, it is finished? It was The sixth day. And on the seventh day, what happened? Jesus' lifeless body rested in a borrowed tomb. The work which the members of the triune God had planned from eternity past, the work which had been anticipated in the design of the tabernacle and its sacrifices, the work which Jesus had completed by the sacrifice of his innocent life, was the means by which all things would be made new. This marvelous, wonderful, incomparable grace freely offered to the fallen sons and daughters of Adam and Eve was how God would recreate all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 speaks of this using creation language. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. But the work and the victory of Jesus would also ultimately undo the curse of sin that had fallen upon the natural world. For the promise of God, (coughs) remember what the prophet Isaiah had said, is that he will recreate the heavens and the earth. Romans chapter 8 and verse 19 to 21 speaks of this, and I read, 
For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious and to brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God because of Jesus everything will be made new it was the apostle john as he was moved by the holy spirit he wrote in his gospel and as he did he gave this stunning glimpse to his readers of the unanticipated reality of creation. This glimpse provided by John connects to Matthew's earth-shaking, rock-splitting, tomb-breaking scene of Good Friday. Now in John 20, after Peter and John had investigated the women's claim that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb where Jesus' body had lain, Mary Magdalene remained in the garden. And John's gospel tells us that first, two angels spoke with her from within the empty tomb, asking, Woman, why are you crying? And she answered them, They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. Then Mary turned, and John's gospel says that she saw another person standing near her. And this person also asked of her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Do you know who Mary thought the person talking to her was? She thought he was the gardener. Her mistake was used by God to subtly communicate what Matthew also subtly communicated when he described the natural phenomena that happened when Jesus died. I remind you that in the first creation, Genesis, in the first creation, Genesis 2.8 says that God had planted a garden. And then he created human beings to live in it. But on the day Jesus rose from the dead, the day which Tom writes describes as the eighth day, new creation began. And yes, it had not come in all of its fullness. We still await that future day. But it has begun. This is what followers of Jesus celebrate every week when the church gathers. We still live and work in a seven-day week. But we worship Jesus on the first day of the week in honor of his resurrection and in recognition of what he began on the eighth day, the work of recreation. Now, I believe this background will help us to understand the details which God had Matthew include in his gospel. Look with me again at the three-word phrase that's at the beginning of verse 51, at that moment. So the events that happened in verse 51 and verse 52 are tied to the death of Jesus. For when it writes, at that moment, you look back to verse 50 and it says, Jesus gave up his spirit. At the moment, 
Jesus gave up his spirit, these were the following things that happened. Now, by way of review from last week, what did the tearing of the curtain in the, in the temple confirm? It confirmed this, that the door into the presence of God was now open because Jesus had paid humanity's sin debt with his lifeblood. All who believe in Jesus and receive him into their life experience in this time an intimacy and a fellowship with God that Old Testament believers couldn't. Look at how Jesus described the change that would come because of what he would do. He said in John 14, verse 23, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. See, Jesus and the Father now make their home, not in a temple behind a curtain and above the atonement cover and between the two cherubim. They now live in those who love Jesus and who obey him. This is a much-repeated theme of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, Your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, You're the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As credible as this is, that God now makes his home in the life of the follower of Jesus, when Jesus physically returns to the earth, he will inaugurate a reality even more precious and sweeter. For look what God himself, or what a loud voice from heaven says at the end of this age and the beginning of the new one. John the apostle wrote, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, the ultimate end of new creation, begun by the death and resurrection of Jesus, is that God will fully restore what the fall ruined. And that means sin and death will be undone and forever banished. The two races, the holy angelic creatures and redeemed humanity, will live with God in one another. And the two realms, heaven and earth, will again be united. But you may be thinking, okay, Rick, okay. But how does the earth shaking, the rock splitting, and the tombs breaking open 
give to us a glimpse of new creation. Glad you asked. I was hoping you would. The writer of Hebrews explains. And remember, in the book of Hebrews, he particularly draws the parallel between what was done in the time of the Old Testament and what was accomplished by Jesus. And so it's very significant that this writer would say to us in Hebrews 12, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. What is he referring to at that time? He's referring back to when the nation of Israel camped in front of Mount Sinai and the glory of God descended in a dense cloud and Moses was called up to speak with God. But as the glory of God rested on Mount Sinai, it shook. The mountain trembled with the glory and the presence of God and the people who were there were terrified by it. This is what the writer is describing at that time. At Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things. So that what cannot be shaken may remain. And I say this to you, the earthquake and the splitting of the rocks were a signpost. What happened locally in Jerusalem on that long-ago day will happen globally when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. At the end of this age, the heavens and the earth will be shaken by its creator. And the writer of Hebrews says to us in this passage, the point of the shaking is to remove what can be shaken, created things. Now, two other passages do help us to understand what he means by this. We go back to the prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 25, as he looks ahead to this moment in the future, at the end of this age and the beginning of the next one, he wrote this, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. What is that sheet? What is that shroud? Verse 8 tells us, he will swallow up death forever. And then notice the parallel and the wording that connects to where we just read in Revelation 21. When that takes place, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And then these four words are added. The Lord has spoken. And through Isaiah, we learn that God will shake all things for the purpose of removing. Or in the words of Isaiah the prophet, in order that he might destroy death forever. And when the enemy of death is swallowed up, and I love how that word is particularly chosen, and that it's God who swallows it up, This passage says that the disgrace of those who've trusted in God will be removed from all the earth. What does that mean? Follower of Jesus, even though we are saved through faith in Jesus, 
and will never face the second death. The fact that we physically die is the reminder of the time when we were far from God because we turned from his goodness and his love, a time when sin corrupted and controlled us. The phrase, the Lord has spoken, is the firm assurance that what God has said will be done. This promise that the sheet that covers all nations the shroud that enfolds all people, it will be swallowed up by God forever. Now the other passage that helps us to understand what will be shaken and removed is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we read, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now listen to this next verse. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And continuing to read, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. And again, here it is. See this phrase. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And we know from Isaiah that death has been swallowed up in victory by God himself. And thus this cry, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn from this passage that all that is created is presently perishable. It will not last. It will not endure forever. But at the return of Jesus Christ, When God shakes the heavens and the earth, what is perishable in the blink of an eye will become imperishable. What is mortal will become immortal. In that moment, as Isaiah had prophesied, death will not only be fully defeated, it will be swallowed up in victory. It will no longer be an enemy. It will no longer have power over us. It will never again cause ruin and heartache and tears. See, the shaking of the earth and the splitting of the rocks that happened when Jesus died were a preview. They were a signpost of God's end game, of what would ultimately happen because Jesus Paid humanity's sin debt in full. What a glorious Savior we have. Now what about the bodies of the many holy people who died, whose tombs broke open, who after the resurrection of Jesus went into Jerusalem and, and appeared to many people? How are we to make sense of this? Well, am I thinking there are only two possible explanations? It either happened or it didn't. I believe It happened as Matthew wrote. 
And the Spirit of God led Matthew to write these details because he wanted us to know something incredibly precious. I believe these people who loved God and who had lived by faith in the promised Messiah were raised from the dead. And they too were a signpost. They were a glimpse of what would happen at the end of this age. God in his goodness permitted them to be raised from the dead on the day Jesus rose in order that there might be this written testimony by Matthew that confirms what happened to Jesus will happen to all who put their faith in him. Now, the many Old Testament passages speak of the resurrection from the dead. One of the most famous ones is Ezekiel 37. And I reference this passage because I firmly believe that it is connected to what Matthew has written about in chapter 27. At the start of the chapter, God asked Ezekiel a question. Can these bones live? And of course, what he was referring to, God had taken him to this valley in the vision. He saw this valley filled with dry bones. Long, people were long gone. There was no flesh. There was no muscle. There was nothing but dry, dusty bones. And God asked Ezekiel the question, can they live again? And Ezekiel very wisely answered God and said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. You and I would say, no, they can't. That's our experience. But then God gave to Ezekiel a vision, and he saw these dry bones come back to life. And afterwards, God explained to Ezekiel the vision. It had a twofold fulfillment. In verses 11 to 14 of Ezekiel 37, this is what God said. Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves, he says it a second time, and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. As I said, this prophecy had a double fulfillment. The first fulfillment was realized by the nation of Israel. For at this point, when God spoke through Ezekiel to the nation, they were in exile. But they again did live in the nation of Israel. And what God said he would do for them, those dead dreams were brought to life as he brought his people back to the land. But the second fulfillment of this promise and of this vision was applied to the Israel of God. And you can read that phrase in Galatians 6 and verse 16. And the Israel of God includes all who belong to Jesus Christ. For on the day Jesus returns, on the day this age ends, our bodies will be raised from the dead and they will be like the glorious body of Jesus. This is when what is perishable will become imperishable. And when what is mortal will become immortal. 
Now, I'm sure there are many other questions some of you may have from what Matthew described. You might think, you know, what happened to these people who were raised from the dead? Did they live forever there? How long did they stay in Jerusalem? And many others that you may have. You know what? Scripture doesn't tell us any more than that. What we do know is these events pointed ahead to the return of Jesus Christ. And they are intended to encourage and to animate our faith. That was the goal of the writer of Hebrews as he applied the events of Jesus and the fulfillment that he brought to all that God had been doing. After he spoke of the shaking of heaven and earth, the writer in Hebrews chapter 12 went on and he said this, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the writer described this unshakable kingdom of God in the preceding verses. He said this, But you've come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the kingdom that will not be shaken. And our hope of this kingdom shakes how you and I, shapes how you and I live in the here and now. For I remind you of what he said. The word of encouragement to us is, let us be thankful. In light of our hope for the future, he tells us we are to be a thankful people. See, salvation produces in us gratitude. Our salvation in Jesus is not earned. It's freely given to us. And our expressions of gratitude to God are the overflow of being loved by God. And this is why those who follow Jesus are a thankful people. We have experienced God's grace and his kindness. God is the constant of our life, not our circumstances. And we find our joy in living in him. Now, the second connection that he makes to our life is influenced by the first. And it's this, that our gratitude fuels our worship. Dave Hunt said this about worship. It is the heart poured out in gratitude and awe, expressing appreciation for who God is and what he has done for us by his grace through Jesus Christ. See, worship is the response of the follower of Jesus to the majesty, to the beauty, to the weight of God's person and what he did for us in Jesus Christ. And this is why the writer in Hebrews urges us to worship God with reverence and with awe. 
Darn Carson wrote this. He said, worship is the proper response of all moral, sentient beings to God. Ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy and delightfully so. In light of new creation, in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, in light of who God is a a consuming fire, reverence and awe are the most appropriate heart responses of which God is deserving along with the ascribing and honor and worth to him. I close with this quote from Francis Shane, Francis Chan. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words can't contain him. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? The God of resurrection the God of new creation. He is worthy of our worship. And we never, we never ever can in our praise, in our devotion, in our prayers, in our manner of living, ever exaggerate the greatness of God. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We bow in awe of your wisdom, your ways that Scripture says are unsearchable, and yet you allow us to see in your word the way in which you moved across the long centuries of human history to bring about the recreation of humanity and of the heavens and the earth. You are a great God, and we bow before you We're humbled by your greatness, humbled by your grace, and we delight in who you are. We come near to you to bask in the glory of your person and to hear what you would say to us. Speak, Lord. Your people are listening. In Jesus' name, amen.